You are listening to Troubadours and Tours with E.W. Conundrum Demure on Radio Free Brooklyn. Welcome to episode 321 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we have our regular contributor, our resident historian, Surf William on the program, and we'll be talking with the Surf about a lot of things, our search for meaning, order and chaos, privilege, cultural differences in America, and Republicans, and apathy, being a political sacred cows, and so much more. A great conversation with our resident historian, Surf William this week on the program. We also have an EW essay titled Memorial, an excerpt from the great work by Jack Kerouac, On the Road, and a poem called Impeccable. And of course, as is always the case, all of this will be imbued, infused with the wonderful energy of several great Tunes. It's so nice to have you with us. Let's get to it. Episode 321 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours.
Memorial. I have nothing to say of greater depth than has been said before me, or I presume will be said after me. I ponder, though, still, as one must, to continue a life worth living. What is of more importance, that which we choose to live for, or that which we choose to die for? Is this existence one of pure folly, or of grand importance, at least to those with whom we share love and time and place? I am of the conviction that human existence should foster goodness through integrity, responsibility, and a humbleness of joyful mutuality in ways of intelligent, soulful coexistence. Yet, I continue to pine for satisfaction of my desires and struggle too much with those eternal fears deeply rooted in the line of human existence. How might I and we transcend? It feels that my logic and animal impulse are limiting and at once limitless. And it occurs to me, while those captor electronic devices hum, ding, buzz, and bing, thankfully, even though it might be a near impossibility to truly be, the nature of my breath as the motion of the wind eternal escapes nothing because both are completely free.
Surf William, is that you? That is me. I've got my earbuds in, but hang on. Let me get the let me get the technical glitches worked out here. All right, Surf William, our resident historian here on Troubadours and Rock on Tours, pulling a last right. minute uh, gig for us. He's not really scheduled until uh, about a month from now, but uh, one of our guests uh, sort of got the flu and couldn't couldn't do it. So, no. Surf William is my my go-to person, and uh, we're going to dive right in as soon as he gets his levels correct. I think I'm good. You're good? Yeah, we're going to, well, we know, yeah. as I said, you're a resident historian. You're also uh, an educator, and you're a musician, among other things. And you, you know, always hit me with th- ideas, insights, as they <laughs> pop into your head uh, via text <laughs> over maybe a yeah. month's span of time. So I have several here, and... I guess I'll, I'll share this one. It's sort of, probably even like a premise in a way or a, uh, a way to frame our conversation. You said this to me a bit back, maybe a couple of weeks ago. The nobility has always sought to justify their privilege 
by claiming they were best suited to rule. In fact, they have always failed in their self-justification by abusing power. This goes all the way back to ancient Greece. That was the statement you shared with me a couple of weeks ago. And I'm like, okay. yeah, all right, Surf William. Hey, I just want to say, too, you're lucky, you're lucky you have a deep bench because you can go to the bench when you need to and pull somebody and, and they'll show up and do the job. Okay? That's correct. That's one of the beauties of Troubadours and Rock On Tours. You're absolutely correct. We have a very deep bench. Right, right, right. So, you know, as far as the ruling class goes, that's been the argument. You know, and by the way, let me just preface this by saying two things. Number one, I would like the the uh, enduring understanding or or the big idea for our talk today to be uh, our search for meaning and our search for order and chaos. So I just want to say that first. Okay, I like that. Our search for okay. meaning. Yep. And then secondly, I'd like to say, you know, I uh, I believe in democracy, but but it, it practiced with certain regulations with certain parameters, I do think democracy is a good thing. But, you know, you had philosophers getting back to ancient Greece like Plato, who were highly skeptical of democracy and highly skeptical of the average person's ability to make decisions, uh, governing decisions. So uh, people like Plato would say, and any of the Roman senators, uh, you know, in, in, in empirical Rome or Republican Rome would say that, there is a certain class of people who, by, by the virtue of the fates, are in positions of leadership and power and influence. And it should be that way because for whatever reason, providence, the gods, fate, whatever you want to call it, they have the, the resources and the power um, and they should make the rules and they should rule and we should trust them to be able to do that because it's their right and their privilege. And over and over again, you see this dynamic of those that are in power believe they have some mandate to rule and they screw it up all the time. And there was an interesting study done a while ago. I wish I could cite the researcher, but I'll do some research on it. We'll talk about it next time. Somebody did some research and determined that um, in local government, instead of having people run for elections, People should have to serve like you do jury duty. You would be called on to be on the city council, for example, for a year or two years randomly. <laughs> and, they and, and they found that in, in experiments that the governance of random people, just random citizens, was as good as or better than the governance of those running for office or those who felt, you know, they had the right or the privilege to, to, to be there and, and rule. So. I question the premise that the nobility automatically uh, are the ones that can that can rule effectively. Yeah, I do too. I mean, first of all, if you have a sense of entitlement, that always limits your your sense of mo your your you know depth of motivation uh, and your I guess um, drive to to be. Uh, innovative you feel like you know ah, i deserve this i could just coast almost mm -hmm. yeah. I, I would i would like i would like to think we are trying to strive for a meritocracy where where your merits determine you know what you do how far you advance what you achieve you know you have to show that you've got this ability 
or be willing to uh, be willing to develop these abilities instead of what we have, which is, let's face it, wealth is becoming more and more concentrated because people figured out ways a long time ago to work within the system and amass and concentrate wealth. And so now what we have, and I keep getting back to this over and over, now what you have is a concentration of wealth in the hands of the few at the expense of the many. So we always hear the term the 1%. Well, the 1% doesn't just believe they have a right to all that wealth and, and money and resources. The 1% believes that they should be running the show also, and they should be the ruling class. And we see over and over again where that leads us. Now, let me, let me ask you about um, this whole idea of meritocracy, you know, merit, uh -huh. things being based on merit rather than uh, tribalism or nepotism or, you know, again, a sense of uh, I deserve it because I come from this segment of society. Uh, you know, you come, you come from a background in Northeastern. You know, it sounds like there's a vacuum cleaner running in the background. You have your vacuum? Oh, there is. Yeah, is there it? is. Hang on. There's not. It's actually a fan, but hold on. Okay, yeah. yeah. Thank you. That, oh, that's much better. I know there, <laughs> there was a listener out there in Mount Vernon, Washington, who was like, please shut the air conditioner off. There you right, go. Right, right. There you go, ma'am. Uh, anyhow, you come from a region of the country where merit is really not the way people get their positions, not just in government, just across the board. Uh, mm -hmm. how, how does that... How does that inform where you are today because of what you saw in your hometown? Uh, mm -hmm. And correct me if I'm mischaracterizing the northeastern part of Pennsylvania in, in regards to, you know, the tribalism and the nepotism that I think exists here to an unhealthy extent. Right. How, how does that inform from your experience here the outcomes that come from that sort of cultural uh, approach? To, to putting people okay. in positions. I'm so, I'm so glad you said that because I read a really interesting article recently. So I'm going to answer your question, but I'm going to say that at the root of your question is um, what cultural values, what cultural values do I, do I admire? Um, what aspects of our culture from Northeastern Pennsylvania do we feel were not really um, admirable? Or, or not beneficial for a healthy, a healthy uh, uh, functioning society. And this article talks about the cultural differences in America. And this, this writer named Woodard um, split America up into 11 distinct cultural regions with different histories, different values, different worldviews. And it really goes a long way in explaining um, some of the really, really vast differences that exist in this country between different regions and different ethnic groups and different socioeconomic groups. Um, so again, I don't want to run away from your question, but I definitely want to touch on this idea of these cultural divides in America, because really at the root of your question for me is this, how can we be so different? If you're talking about the tribalism and the, and the, and the clan mentality of some of the places where we grew up in, in Pennsylvania, um, I'm saying that they exist all over, that that mentality exists all over. And, and my question is, why does it exist? And, and what can we do? What can we do to, to 
um, I don't know, improve the situation? Yeah. I mean, that's the ultimate outcome we're hoping for, to improve, not just to criticize. We're, we're, we're up in arms because we see this is not good. It's not healthy. It's not bringing us anywhere that we want to be going. I think a lot of people would agree with that assessment. And quite honestly, when I think back to the 2016 election, I think a lot of people really had that gut feeling that the system was rigged against them. And they weren't wrong in thinking that. That was an absolutely correct thing to think. Unfortunately, what happened was you had this character come along who exploited those feelings and completely misrepresented the, the causes of them, the reasons why we're earning less money or we're feeling less connected and more disenfranchised. Uh, he, he was able to identify those core feelings, but then the reasons that he gave, the explanations that he gave, and then the remedies were completely wrong and completely disingenuous and flat out flat out lies. Um, but I think we've got that feeling running through. A lot of people have this feeling that something is really fundamentally wrong and we don't quite know what to do, what the solution's going to be. Fundamentally wrong with the uh, executive branch and the Republican Party right now or fundamentally wrong with our society? Yes, yes. There's a fundamental, there are fundamental problems with the institutions right now in this country. You talked about the political institutions. Um, I could talk about the economic institutions. I could talk about the institution, the financial uh, institution of capitalism. And I could make really good arguments that this institution has failed. And an indication of how deep-seated that feeling is with people, even if they're afraid of the term socialist or communist or whatever they're afraid of, people felt that something was fundamentally wrong with capitalism for the first time yesterday on NPR, I heard Cokie Roberts mention that the 2020 election is shaping up to be Democrats, socialists, Republicans, hardcore right winger capitalists. And Cokie Roberts said, well, this is nothing. This is nothing new. This is the this is the position that those sides fall back on uh, uh, sort of at their at their core. And and she said something else really interesting. She said, you heard this talk from Donald Trump in the 2016 election. He condemned capitalism. He talked about he talked about um, manufacturing jobs moving to other parts of the world. Well, they moved to those other parts of the world because labor is cheaper there, and the and the owners of these businesses can increase their profits because they're paying their workers less. Well, that's one of the core tenets of capitalism to increase profit. Uh, he talked about suppressed wages in America and how jobs here were not earning as much as they used to. Well, again, that's capitalism. We have world competition now. Wages are lower in Mexico and Southeast Asia. So now Americans subsequently are making less money too. And the inherent insecurity that people have thinking my job might just go away. Trump was critiquing the system of capitalism, but nobody would say that. And I continue to argue that in fact, Trump was right. He was absolutely right in that assessment, regardless of how he came to it. But then the remedies were completely, completely disingenuous, mean-spirited, myopic, um, nasty, uh, and, and, and ultimately ineffective. So the, the, the diagnosis was correct, but the remedy was completely wrong. What about some of the folks? I think it's a Tim Ryan, I think is his name. He's a candidate from Ohio, a congressperson from Ohio, mm -hmm. who's running for president on the Democratic side, along with 21 others. He 
he believes capitalism is the right way. We're just not functioning correctly in in uh, in that context. We need to be more innovative. We need to be more just. We need to pool our amazing resources as a country, uh, as a society, and then we can compete worldwide and, and give people really great paying jobs so they can raise a family and live you know, good lives, happy lives. Mm-hmm. Well, that, and that all sounds great. That sounds fantastic. Um, and again, that's sort of like a micro argument. Like, let's do some stuff to make our lives better in America. What can we do? And we'll, and we'll implement some changes or we'll pass some legislation. But I'm talking about a system at its core, and I'm talking about capitalism. I'm talking about a system at its core that emphasizes and relies on perpetual growth. Um, the economy has to grow. Your profits have to increase. Well, it's oh, that was my dog. She doesn't like what I don't give her. No, so, Republican. So, you have a Republican dog, maybe. I don't oh know. yeah, yeah. She's she's really she's too much. She's a fascist, actually. <laughs> she gets her way all the time. But um, help me get back on track here. We're talking about we're talking about the fundamental nature of capitalism. It's not sustainable. If you really step back and you look at it long term, you look at the holistic picture. This idea that we can keep growing is not sustainable. There simply has to be fundamentally a different, a different course for us to take because I really do think capitalism will ultimately eat itself. Uh, so I like when I hear politicians talking about different types of solutions and things like that. But I'll say it again. What Trump was addressing in his list of grievances when he announced his candidacy was the very nature of capitalism. And that's not going to go away. That's not going to go away. You know, you're not manufacturing jobs aren't coming back. Um, well, what about what, what about if we manufacture uh, solar panels? You know, and what and about it? Wind turbines. I mean, couldn't that give give us a whole economy for? Uh, there, there is yes. The answer is people? yes. There yes. There the answer is yes. There is no doubt that that new technology uh, and new industry will create new jobs. Number one. Other people will lose their jobs as a result of that. That's an inevitable consequence. Like the coal miners? So, yeah, right, right. So, so, yes, we will create jobs. Yes, we will lose jobs. Ultimately, where does that get us? Probably kind of right back where we started. Uh, in other words, yes, it's great that jobs were created, but don't forget jobs were lost. I mean, when the automobile, uh, uh, you know, when the automobile was was able to be mass produced, and that created a lot of jobs, but a lot of people lost their jobs. Oh too. yeah, the blacksmiths gone, right? No more horseshoes necessary. Right, right. I mean, people lost. There were people who lost their jobs because of the automobile. Uh, I'm simply saying this. I don't have. I don't know that I have any solutions. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say I don't. I think most I'm of us simply, realize you have no solutions. No, I have no solutions. <laughs> but you know, I mean, step one is diagnosing the problem and acknowledging that we have a problem. Right. If you have if you have a drug, this is because I could go on for hours about the Republican Party. I mean, you have to address you have to determine what the problem is and then figure out a solution for it. Uh, I'm not going to get into a rant against the Republican Party, but what the Republicans seem to do is they define a solution and then they go out looking for a problem. And we just have to be more mature and more rational in our formulation of public policy. You know, uh, myself, uh, our associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavese, 
and my wonderful wife, Jenny, we all lately, I've been having conversations with them about that adage that you put out there about Republicans. They have to be one of three things, and we, we're not sure if we quite mm-hmm. got it right. Can you, can you share that again with the listeners? Yeah, and let me just preface this by saying I welcome anyone who can prove me wrong. So I'm actually hoping that somebody can show me an example that proves this little thesis wrong. But here's the deal. I always said for years and years and years, if you vote Republican, you are at least one of three things and you could be more, you could be two or three of these things. You are either wealthy, um, ignorant, or mean. Uh, So those are the three, those are the three uh, characters of Republican voters across the board. And I always ask for somebody to prove me wrong and no one's been able to disprove that. You are listening to Troubadours and Tours with E.W. Conundrum Demure on Radio Free Brooklyn. Yeah. Well, okay, let's go. Let, let's just throw out a couple of Republicans there. Mitch McConnell, which one of those is he? Oh, wealthy and mean. Okay, how about... He's not ignorant. I don't think Mitch McConnell's dumb. I think he's a smart man. How about George wealthy, W. Bush? Wealthy and mean. Not ignorant? Oh yeah, okay, ignorant too. Wealthy, mean, and ignorant. He's a he's a he's a trifecta. We call him a trifecta. <laughs> but but look, and we laugh, right? We laugh, and I so wish I were wrong, but I'm not. You have to laugh because it's right. it's you know otherwise. And you brought up an example one time on a previous show about you know what if there's a person who just believes in fiscal responsibility, right? And you know we every single example you brought up, I was able to I think I think successfully show how this person fit into one of those categories well how about um you know the uh senator from from utah mitt romney mm-hmm. uh well wealthy first of all would you say he's, um, he, he's not ignorant he's not an ignorant man no but i mean he's wealthy and, and i'll tell you something with that level of wealth does come a certain uh, a certain um uh nastiness in other words you're willing to do some nasty stuff to perpetuate your power and to and to perpetuate the power and wealth of those you know you represent. So you know if if and I don't know um, I don't know Romney's full political and, and and business history, but I know that to achieve to get to that level that he's gotten to, you've done some you know you've shut down factories, you've fired people, you know you've exploited resources in the name of profit. So you've done some things that, in my opinion, you know based on my value system, are mean and nasty. And I guess you could also say, when you're so wealthy, so much more wealthy than everybody else, I think that must create a, sur- a sort of ignorance. You really don't understand how it goes for everybody else day to day. Well, of course. I mean, if you're living, you're living, you're living in rarefied air. I mean, do you remember George H. W. Bush went into that grocery store? Yeah. And had no idea how a grocery store scanner worked. Yep. Exactly. Well, that, that's a, that's an indication. You know, we're not breaking any new ground here by saying that the the wealthy and the powerful live in a you know a different environment than we do. Certainly, they do, and that definitely has to warp your perceptions. Just like uh, forty five throwing paper towels at people, at, you know, in flood plagued areas of the country. Just throwing here, here's some yeah, paper. Not, not, yeah. 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 Now, it's, Trump, you know, Trump's all those things. Trump, Trump's wealthy, allegedly wealthy. We, we won't know that till we see his taxes. But Trump, let's call him wealthy, uh, totally ignorant. I mean, as ignorant as anybody I've ever seen. And I'm talking about, like, anybody I've run into in my day-to-day life. Janitors, you know, teachers, uh, lawyers, gas station attendants. You know what I mean? Like, 
that guy is as ignorant as anybody I've ever I've ever encountered. Um, and also very, very mean. He's a very mean person. He's a very base and mean person. So again, you know, I wish I were wrong, but I'm not. It sounds like you just changed your physical location. Where are you now? Did you go on your boat, I, on your yacht? I, I'm, I'm outside now. It's a breezy day. Yeah, yeah. Talking to Surf William here on Troubadours and Rock on Tours, our resident historian, a great uh, contributor to the program for years now. Now let's, let's look at um, uh, this thing between Nancy Pelosi and uh, President uh, 45. Uh, there's some mm-hmm. weird, you know, there's a, there's a weird relationship between these two. And lately it's gotten nasty in the last couple of days where they're calling each other's names and saying both are crazy, mentally incompetent, and, you know, interventions should be had. Uh, what, what do you think? I mean, do you, do you like, well, let me ask you if you like the Madam Secretary. If I like her, you know, that's a, that's a question that I've, I've talked to students about. And it really isn't a question of whether I like her or not. It's a question of whether, for politicians, we shouldn't be into this like game. Well, that's we what I mean. About do, what... Do, I, do you like what she's doing as a politician? I don't mean as a person. Right. Um, okay, let me take a breath for a moment. And again, I want to preface this, this little segment with, with, with something. I want to say that I think that our government is wholly illegitimate. I think it's I think it's evolved into and maybe it always was an oligarchy. It represents the interests of those in power and those with wealth and resources and it neglects and disenfranchises those members of society that that don't have that kind of influence. Um, that are less powerful and that are less influential. So for that reason, I have a real problem with the entire United States government right now. Uh, in in theory, in theory, it's good. In practice, it's it's not it's not it doesn't seem to me to be um, a truly democratic and beneficial form of, of governance. Now, having said that, um, Nancy Pelosi, here's the deal. Do I like politicians like Pelosi? Well, like most people, I'm a little bit I'm a little bit skeptical of, of, of people who've been in office for a long time. But running the government and working on crafting and passing legislation is a really complex, hard job. So do I want people there in those positions that know what they're doing and understand the mechanisms of government and, and, and how to work with them to get things accomplished? Yes, I definitely want that. And you see over and over again, when you get away from that, you run into disaster, like Trump or Brexit. Um, so Pelosi, the bottom line is this. There's a lot of issues on which, uh, uh, with which I disagree with her. But overall, in terms of basic philosophy, yes, I, I like Pelosi. And I would vote for Pelosi. Okay. Uh, and government, it sounds to me, you believe in government. You think it's important. You just don't like the way we operate ours. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't have to be fascism or anarchy. You know what I mean? There are, there, there's a whole spectrum of, of governmental structure in between that we can work on. But I mean, look, I don't know what to say about democracy. Let's face it. How democratic are we when, when, when barely half the population that can vote votes? That's not really democracy. Well, that's our fault. It's our fault. We're, we're, yeah. we know we're, we're allowing ourselves to be disconnected, to be misdirected, to be apathetic, to be lazy. I feel like uh, every action that you take is political in one way or another. Even the people who say they're apolitical or don't do politics, they're political, too, because obviously by not getting involved and engaged, they're abdicating their they're abdicating what power they do have. If I don't vote. 
I'm giving more weight to the person who doesn't agree with me. I'm giving more weight to their vote because I'm not here to counteract it. So even by being apathetic and apolitical, for example, and not voting, I'm being political because I'm ceding power to a certain group of people who will then exercise power the way they see fit. That's a political action. It is. It's passive. But it's, it's passive, a- but it's right. Right. Yeah, right. Ex- exactly. But it's a but it's a, it's, a, it's a political gesture. You are saying I am giving up. Po- Look, if a if a if a uh, May is going to step down in Great Britain. Yeah, I just I just read that. Yep. So she's she's giving up power, right? That's a political act. She's saying I will now I will no longer be in power. I'm giving up power to somebody else by not voting on a much smaller scale. But by not voting, you're 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 abdicating your office. You're resigning. You're you're handing power over to someone else. Right. And as a citizen, if you don't partake, then you're letting someone else run. Uh, or influence where we're going as a nation. I think these debates and these discussions are really healthy. I think they're really important. I do too. I do, right, and I don't. I don't think it's important. I don't. I don't. Let me let me rephrase that. I, I don't think it's beneficial to have certain sacred cows that you're not allowed to talk about. No. I think everything everything should be on the table and be allowed to be discussed, including our constitution and our form of government. Is it really the best? Can we change it? Should we rewrite the Constitution? Uh, these shouldn't be taboo subjects. I agree. I mean, then you're limiting your your analysis, your understanding. Right, you, you brought up that candidate who talked about ways to create jobs and opportunities for people. And I said, yeah, but it's still all in the context of capitalism, which overall I think is unsustainable. Well, we should have those talks. Yeah. You know, if I'm incorrect, if my ideas, if my ideas aren't valid, they should be sussed out. Again, now, you know, I'm going to go on a stream of consciousness rant here. That's what I so lament about our current political environment. There's no more intelligent discussion about issues. It's crazy now. It's really crazy. We have pressing issues that need solutions. We need to be able to sit down and discuss them rationally with, with evidence. Um, and, you know, and Donald Trump, I, I, it's hard for, I, you know, I'm sorry I even brought up his name. It's discouraging. That's what it is. It's discouraging. It seems like it's been a long time, too, that he's been in office uh, for for me, at least, and for a lot of people. Uh, and it hasn't been. And so we we could bounce back if we get ourselves into a you know better direction with a with better people running the show and and the citizens mm-hmm. informing them as to what needs to be done. You know, but we have to ourselves be informed. You know, you know, oftentimes we always go back, you and I both are educators, how we're, unfortunately, most of us are not well suited enough to understand what this dynamic society needs to be healthy, to, to you know, to grow in positive ways. And we, that, we have to take that on as well, if we're going to really function as a, as a great country, that well, responsibility. You know, and I, and I, I, Education. I, of course, I agree. I, yeah, it's it's you know it's almost probably boring the way we agree with each other, and I do agree with you. Um, unfortunately, we're at the point now where the the philosophical debate is interesting, and you know the the values and the and the goals that you bring up are are um, are are laudable, but we're at the point now I feel where real real action needs to be taken, like things need to start happening now, concrete things to start to change the course that we're on. And I'm talking about like environmental sustainability. You know, all the ideas are great, but we really do need now to make some really hard decisions. 
to to try and ensure our our welfare moving forward. Um, it seems like our political system is simply not designed for that. The long-term discussion about global sustainability. If a politician has to run for office every two years, then that politician's time frame is two years. It's not 50 years or 100 years or 1,000 years. So to me, the system is not set up to address the issues that we're facing now. Sir William, we're going to have to leave it at that. We put in about 30 minutes of conversation, and we'll, we'll pick it up in uh, not too long. Again, you did a guest stint given last-minute uh, 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 illness to uh, our scheduled guest. I appreciate it very much. Uh, it's, it's always a pleasure talking to you, our resident historian. Have a great week, and hopefully we cross paths in a physical way soon. Yeah, I just want to say the doctor said I wasn't ready to play, but I said I'm stepping up for my coach, and I and I went in that game and I gave it everything I got. You hit okay? a trip. You hit a triple at least. Exactly. Listen, it's always a pleasure, and um, let's stay in touch. Hey, maybe I'll see you over Memorial Day. That'd be awesome. Yeah, make sure cool. if you're in town to to give me a call. All right. Ciao, Peace. Fratello. Ciao.
And now an excerpt from Jack Kerouac's masterpiece, On the Road. Oh man, that Hudson goes. Where did you get it? I bought it with my savings. I've been working on the railroad, making $400 a month. There was utter confusion in the following hour. My southern relatives had no idea what was going on, or who or what Dean, Mary Lou, and Ed Dunkel were. They dumbly stared. My aunt and my brother Rocky went into the kitchen to consult. There were in all 11 people in the little southern house. Not only that, but my brother had just decided to move from that house, and half his furniture was gone. He and his wife and baby were moving closer to the town of Testament. They had bought a new parlor set, and their old one was going to my aunt's house in Patterson, though we hadn't yet decided how. When Dean heard this, he at once offered his services with the Hudson. He and I would carry the furniture to Patterson in two fast trips and bring my aunt back at the end of the second trip. This was going to save us a lot of money and trouble. It was agreed upon. My sister-in-law made a spread, and the three battered travelers sat down to eat. Mary Lou had not slept since Denver. I thought she looked older and more beautiful now. I learned that Dean had lived happily with Camille in San Francisco ever since the fall of 1947. He got a job on the railroad and made a lot of money. He became the father of a cute little girl, Amy Moriarty. Then suddenly, he blew his top while walking down the street one day. He saw 49 Hudson for sale and rushed off to the bank for his entire roll. He bought the car on the spot. Ed Dunkel was with him. Now they were broke. Dean calmed Camille's fears and told her he'd be back in a month. I'm going to New York and bring Sal back. She wasn't too pleased at this prospect. But what is the purpose of all this? Why are you doing this to me? It's nothing. It's nothing, darling. A hum. Sal has pleaded and begged with me to come and get him. It is absolutely necessary for me, too. But we won't go into all these explanations. And I'll tell you why. No, listen. I'll tell you why. And he told her why. And of course, it made no sense. Big, tall Ed Kunkel also worked on the railroad. He and Dean had just been laid off during a seniority lapse because of a drastic reduction of crews. Ed had met a girl called Galetia, who was living in San Francisco on her savings. These two mindless cads decided to bring the girl along to the east and have her foot the bill. Ed cajoled and pleaded. She wouldn't go unless he married her. In a whirlwind few days, Ed Dunkel married Galetia with Dean rushing around to get the necessary papers. In a few days before Christmas, they rolled out of San Francisco at 70 miles per, headed for L.A. and the snowless southern road. In L.A., they picked up a sailor and a travel bureau and took him along for $15 worth of gas. He was bound for Indiana. They also picked up a woman with her idiot daughter for $4 gas fare to Arizona, Dean sat the idiot girl with him up front and dug her, as he said, all the way, man, such a gone sweet little soul. Oh, we talked, we talked of fires and the desert turning to a paradise and her parrot that swore in Spanish. Dropping off these passengers, they proceeded to Tucson. All along the way, Galatia 
Dunkel, Ed's new wife, kept complaining that she was tired and wanted to sleep in a motel. If this kept up, they'd spend all her money long before Virginia. Two nights, she forced a stop and blew tens on motels. By the time they got to Tucson, she was broke. Dean and Ed gave her the slip in a hotel lobby and resumed the voyage alone with the sailor and without a qualm. Ed Dunkel was a tall, calm, unthinking fellow who was completely ready to do anything Dean asked him. And at this time, Dean was too busy for scruples. He was roaring through Las Cruces, New Mexico, when he suddenly had an explosive yen to see his sweet first wife, Mary Lou, again. She was up in Denver. He swung the car north against the feeble protests of the sailor and zoomed into Denver in the evening. He ran and found Mary Lou in a hotel. They had ten hours of wild lovemaking. Everything was decided again. They were going to stick. Mary Lou was the only girl Dean ever really loved. He was sick with regret when he saw her face again, and as of yore, he pleaded and begged at her knees for the joy of her being. She understood Dean. She stroked his hair. She knew he was mad. To soothe the sailor, Dean fixed him up with a girl in a hotel room over the bar where the old pool hall gang always drank. But the sailor refused the girl and in fact walked off in the night and they never saw him again. He evidently took a bus to Indiana. On the road again Just can't wait to get on the road again The life I love is making music with my friends And I can't wait to get on the road again On the road again Going places that I've never been Seeing things that I may never see again and I can't wait to get on the road again Road again, like a band of gypsies, we go down the highway. We're the best of friends, insisting that the world keep turning our way and our way. It's on the road again. I just can't wait to get on the road again. The life I love is making music with my friends, and I can't wait to get on the road again.
Turkish coffee in labyrinths of yellow sunlight as human perspiration beads life radiant through the trees in bubbling brooks, despite machines and love-lost scenes illuminating with hopeless motivations of desire. Impeccable spirits shall not retire, because, though they are indeed imperfect, pure essence of life is not ever for hire. your mark on me is permanent a tattoo pierce the skin and the blood runs through
And there you have it, episode 321 of Troubadours and Tours, with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, our resident historian, Surf William. I also would like to thank Jack Kerouac and these musical artists, Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli, The Who, Courtney Barnett, Sonic Youth, Willie Nelson, Lucinda Williams, Branford Marsalis, and Terrence Blanchard, too. I also would like to thank you and you and you. Washington State, Missouri, Illinois, Oklahoma, Vermont, Maine, Pennsylvania, New York City, where everybody's slick, and all in between and otherwise, too. Thank you for listening. It means a lot to us. Until next week, let's give it a go and try to enjoy this one. It's unofficially summer. Hoo-ha!